gotten to the point of James chapter 3 and verse 1, and we were discussing the seriousness of the tongue and the use of the tongue. And part of what we kind of dug into a little bit a few weeks ago was dealing with this idea that some have of the first century church and saying that, well, back in the day, things used to be a little bit simpler because there were fewer divisions, fewer conflicts and things of that nature. And we started dealing with really what could be called first century denominationalism. That's really a simple way you can kind of picture that for modern day terminology. But it was groups of people back in that day who had doctrines that were separate from what Christ had taught, they were separate from what the apostles had taught, and they were separate from what was specifically church doctrine at the time. And it was people who were taking and mixing ideas, and we were going and kind of looking at each of those groups and kind of getting a little bit better of a picture of who they were. So we had gotten into a little bit of this, and we talked about how false teaching is something that was constantly talked about in early doctrine and and writings of the apostles. Paul specifically dealt with many instances of false teaching. Jesus himself even had instances where he was talking about some of the false teaching that was going on. For instance, the Pharisees had this idea that they would give exceptions to the laws of God so long as you were helping the Pharisees. So long as you were helping the synagogue, you didn't quite have to follow the law of Moses exactly because a religious leader was giving you permission to get out of it. Does that sound familiar to some groups we hear about today? It's very similar to how we hear some other people interact. Just as long as I had someone who is a learned man or someone who has maybe good standing within the church or maybe has a specific position of clergy, then that person has the right to give basically excuses out of some of the laws of God. And so Paul dealt with this. We even talked about with Joshua that in the early days of the children of Israel and they had just come out of captivity. They had gone throughout the land of Canaan. At the end of Joshua's life, he tells them, choose you this day whom you will serve. You can go serve the gods that your father served across the, across the Jordan, across the Red Sea, and back in the land of Egypt, how they were following the Egyptian gods of their day. He said, you can go and do that. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. He was making a distinction. You see, we can't learn wrong and obey right. That's not going to happen. If I learn something that's wrong, I'm going to practice what is wrong, and it's going to make me wrong. That's the way that that works. If I learned in math class that 2 plus 2 is 5, that's going to mess up every single calculation I will ever make that has 2 plus 2. That's just the reality of it. If I learn it wrong, it's going to show itself in incorrect ways. And so in the first century, it was a very serious thing because what did they not have on hand that they could go reference? They didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the New Testament. They couldn't go back and just look it up and say, okay, here's what was said in this instance, and here's what Jesus said, or here's what Peter said. They were literally living it. They were living what was going on, and the only people that they had to have direct confirmation was those who had the gift of the Holy Spirit to confirm the Word. They were saying, okay, here's what God said, and they said, okay, prove it, and they said, okay, here's the power of God. I'm one of His servants. I'm showing you that what I'm saying is true. That was the real purpose of those spiritual gifts. Remember in Acts chapter 10, when Peter went to Cornelius and his household, what do we read happened to Cornelius and his family? This is the only other instance in the New Testament where this happens. The Holy Spirit fell on them. So what's the other instance that we read about that in Scripture? Acts 2, the apostles. It came upon the apostles. Now, why would the Holy Spirit come upon the apostles, and why would the Holy Spirit come on the Gentiles, but we don't really read about that happening again? Okay, they already had the baptism of John. What would be another reason? 
Do what? Because it didn't happen again. But what was the purpose of it? That's what we're trying to get to. What was the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles and upon Cornelius and his household? Confirmation or acceptance. This is God saying, these are my chosen people. The Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles, and from that day forward, they start teaching God, saying, I'm confirming these are my people. These are my servants. These are the ones that are going to be preaching. Then the Holy Spirit comes upon Cornelius and his household. And what was the whole message of Acts chapter 10? Gentiles are now accepted. Gentiles are now a part of the Lord's kingdom. Because remember, that would have been something the Jews would have really struggled with. Because they've been taught their whole lives, you're not to allow the strangers to be a part of your people. You're not allowed to worship with them, all those kind of things. Even though we saw a couple weeks ago that even in the old law, they made allowances for non-Jews to worship under the Old Testament. We call them proselytes. But in this period of time, this was very common for a lot of different ideas to come about. Remember, what, what empire is in control right now under Rome? Now, what did Rome borrow so much of their culture from? The Greeks. Now, the Greeks were very well known in the ancient world for being philosophers. We just want to learn everything. In fact, when Paul goes to uh, Athens, specifically in Acts chapter 17, he sits on the Acropolis and he talks to these learned men and it says they wanted to hear him because they wanted to learn what? Some new thing. See, learning was a hobby for them. For them, this was their discovery channel. (laughs) They were going to learn something new, some new idea, some new information. And so it was very common for this period of time that, oh, I hear something I like, so I just add it to what I'm doing. It was basically buffet religion. I like this God. I don't like this God. I like this part of their religion, so I'm going to bring that in. I don't like this. And that's how they approach things. Now, we were talking about how there's this distinction that we see between the the first century world and, the new t- and our world today and how people act like it was so much more simple that you just had pagans, you had Christians, and you had Jews. But the reality is there were so many variations of those three groups that it would have been very confusing for a lot of people. In fact, whenever Christianity formed, the Roman Empire thought, oh, this is just another sect of Judaism. This is just another group that's come up under some new teacher and this is going to be its own little thing. So as this progresses, it's kind of the purpose of this is to see the differences between then and now really aren't so defined. People are the same now, they're the same then. The mission is the same now, the mission was the same then. That's the way that we're approaching this. And so we were talking about how each of, the, each of these people that we were talking about in the Scriptures, how they dealt with different forms of false teaching. We mentioned how Jesus dealt with the false teachings of the Pharisees and how the Pharisees has started off with noble intentions. They started off trying to bring the old law back, but in doing so, they ended up just basically putting themselves in charge and making themselves God. The second thing we dealt with was how Paul dealt with so many different forms of false teaching. And this was where we really started to get into the weeds of first century denominationalism. Because Paul dealt with people who were Judaizers first and foremost. Now, what was a Judaizer? Someone Can someone remember from last time? What was a Judaizer? Wanted to keep the old law. They said that in order to be a Christian, yes, you have to obey the New Testament, but there are some tenets of the old law you still have to follow. A form of denomination. This is what we're trying to do. You have to agree with this viewpoint, but we're going to separate it a little bit. Because what does the term denomination mean? What does that mean? 
a divide, a break-off, something separate, but something came out of, a denomination. If I have something in front of me and I cut off part of it and set it to the side, that's a denomination. Now, we've become very familiar with it in the terms of many different religious groups, but that is really the ultimate meaning. And so these people were separating and saying, you're not allowed to be in fellowship with us unless you keep the tenets of the old law. Paul dealt with this very heavily. He said, this is not accepted. This is not acceptable. We're not going to let this happen. And we talked about how in Galatians chapter 2, even Peter was carried up in some of this idea. When the Jews came in, he went to go fellowship with the Jews and left the Gentiles off to themselves. Now, the fascinating thing about that to me, Peter was the one in Acts chapter 10. <laughs> he was the one that received the vision. He was the one that went to Cornelius' household. And then we read, not that long after, he was still caught up in it, still struggling with it. Old habits die hard, as the old saying were, right? But we go into the book of First and Second Corinthians, and we start seeing that there was a lot of division that was going on in the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul specifically dealt with this. He said, I've heard it's been reported by those of the household of Chloe that there are divisions among you. Now, those divisions were mostly over teachers. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Now, why would that be such an easy thing for them to fall into back then? What other form of religion had, was very heavily influenced by specific teachers? Anyone know? Well, the Greeks definitely would have been big on this as well because they had their teachers. Specifically, we think of uh, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates. Those were all teachers that would have their followers go after them. And it was even similar in Judaism as well. They had their rabbis. Greeks had their philosophers. So this was a very common phenomenon in the first century to follow after a teacher. Now, if I was taught by the Apostle Paul, then my thoughts are going to be, well, I'm, I'm a follower of Paul. Yes, he's teaching about Christ, but I'm a follower of his teachings. And so that's what they were getting caught up into, was this idea that I'm following after my teacher. And Paul says, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not how this works. He said, was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He said, who was the one who made the sacrifice? That's the one you're serving. You're not serving me. You're not following after my teachings. In fact, later on he would say, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Basically giving the, the terms that if I'm not following Christ, you better not be following me. That better not be what you're doing. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul again has to deal with the church in Corinth, and part of what he's dealing with there were this group of people that were coming in and claiming to be super apostles. Super apostles. That just sounds like a bad cartoon. Like, to me, that's what it sounds like. It just sounds like a really bad cartoon. But that's how they were portraying themselves. They said, yes, you've heard of Paul, you've heard of Peter, you've heard of James, all these apostles, but we're better. We know more. We're more well-versed. And in the first century, one of the thing, common things they dealt with were these people who were mixing Greek philosophy, they were mixing Judaism, they were mixing, well, Christianity and some of the ancient religions as well, mixing those together and creating its own form of mutant little monster. <laughs> but they were claiming that the more religions you follow, the more wise that you are. Because in their minds, they're saying, if I'm taking wisdom from each of these different religions, then I can become a more complete person. 
I can understand the word, the world more, more fully. Now, back in that day, highly educated person would be someone who did this. And so if you were a first century person and you were trying to think of who's the smartest guy around, you would think of the person who had studied all these other philosophers. You would think of the person who had been a, a, have all these different teachers and he would say, well, I was a student of Aristotle or I was a student of Plato. And for you, you'd say, oh, wow, those were very intelligent men. And so it was started building these qualifications. Now, let me put that in modern day terms. I studied at Oxford University. I studied at Yale. That would have been the same idea. I'm trying to find these people that are these super wise and intelligent men, but we read throughout the scriptures about what the wisdom of men amounts to. You see, each of these people, and this is the reality too, a lot of different groups do get some form of truth. Some form of it. But that doesn't mean I can go study every religion out there and I can take every practice of every religion and then if I put it all together just right, I'll figure out the truth. That's not how that works. See, Jesus came and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which is something that would have been contrary to first century mindset. The Jews were thought of as very weird people because they did not have all these different gods. They did not have all these different groups that they listened to. But even within Judaism, there were different sects. We think of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Specifically with the Sadducees, they believed there was not going to be a resurrection. So each of these groups even had divisions within themselves. So when we try to think about the first century, let's not think about it just in these three different groups. Let's understand that this was a wide spectrum of confusion that they were dealing with. And they were having to cut through all of these different groups. And in Revelation chapter 2... John talks about another group, the Nicolaitans. Specifically, Revelation chapter 2, verses 6, and in verse 15 again, he says the same thing. And the only thing we really historically know about this group is what's written in the Bible, which is, God hated their works. That's really all we know about them from the Bible. That God hates the works of the Nicolaitans. My thoughts are, if that's... If that's the only record we have, they probably were not as good as anyone might think they were. But as we continue on with this, and I know I'm rushing through for sake of time, but this is all review. <laughs> but as we get to this next section here, and this is where we stopped last time, the Gnostics. Now, this is a group that existed in the first century, and it still exists today. This is a very serious problem that we've seen pop up over and over again throughout history. Now, the Gnostics are a group of people who, in summary, they believe they have secret knowledge. They believe that throughout all these years and all the time that we've looked at the Bible, there's just been hidden messages in it, and I've been able to decipher it. No one else before me has been able to decipher this, but we've been able to decipher this. This was a very common thing that came up in the first century. And in reality, as we go through and look at some of the teachings of this group, you'll probably see that they're still very much alive and well with how some of the teachings are. Now, they don't go by this name at all. Like, they don't go by this name. But there are some who like this idea of New Age philosophy. Some of their teachings fall in line with Gnosticism. Other groups in the religious world also adhere to some of these teachings. But let's specifically start looking in Colossians chapter 2. 
That's Colossians chapter 2. Now here, Paul writing to the church in Colossae, he starts to talk about how some of these teachings come about. He says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Now, if I'm the Apostle Paul, and I'm trying to start teaching people about Christ, I'm going to have to try to unteach some things. Now, here's something that was fascinating to me. I heard this a lot when I was uh, in my first work when I was in South Arkansas. And I heard it pretty consistently from some folks where they would keep saying, well, things are harder today because we have to unteach so much about the Bible before we can even teach them. Friends, they had to unteach here too. Yes, about the Bible, but not the Bible in its physical sense like we have it today, but the teachings of Christ. They had to unteach some things because you're already going to have some knowledge. That's just the way. If you live long enough, you're going to have some knowledge. You're going to have come in contact with some teaching, and as all of us know, there's always one or two crazies in every bunch, right? <laughs> there's always one or two people who have some really out-there ideas. And so you're going to have to unteach some things that people have learned their whole lives. I remember one of the first... Bible classes that I had in South Arkansas. And whenever I tell stories about my time in Arkansas, people think I'm lying because things were so wild <laughs> that took place. But I was in a Bible class on one occasion, and I was teaching the teenagers, and one of the teenagers raised their hand and said, um, we were talking about the book of Genesis, and we're talking about Cain and Abel, and I mentioned Cain, and I said, now who was Cain? And he said, oh yeah, that was the devil's son. If you're a Bible class teacher, and that's the question that comes up, and that's the answer you get, <laughs> you're not prepared for that. <laughs> and I, as I'm sitting there listening to him, I said, okay, um, no. Uh, wh why do you say that? He said, well, my grandma told me that when Eve took the apple, that means that she was having a child with the devil. And I said, well, no, that's not what took place here. <laughs> That's not what this is about. But that's just how it is. A lot of people have, well, Grandma told me this, or Grandpa told me that, or I heard this from back in the day, or I heard this when I was... And so you have to unteach some wild ideas that don't line up with Scripture, that don't line up with what was actually taught. And so Paul was telling them, don't let these people cheat you with philosophy. He says, if you're going to philosophy, philosophy's not even a whole picture. Remember later on in the book of James, and James chapter, or early on in the book of James, James chapter 1, he says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. See, when God gives a gift, it is complete. It is whole. Well, is wisdom not a gift from God? Is knowledge not a gift from God? Is, the, uh, is hope, love, all these things not a gift from God? But when mankind tries to come up with its own definition or its own practice of these things that God created, it comes out half-formed. We take something like love and we turn it into lust. We take something like hope and we turn it into wishful thinking. You see, when we take a God-given concept, we tweak it. We mess it up in some way or another. And if we're following it the way that God has intended, it has the full blessing, the full effect. 
God created the church. The church is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. But what happens when men start trying to make it all about them? It starts to crack. And more and more until it falls apart. Until it's unrecognizable from where it was when God instituted it. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. Some of these people were coming in and they were trying to say, well, listen to these great ideas that I have. And it ends up leading people away from God. Now, let's go on a little bit farther. Let's look at verse 18. Here Paul says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not, or which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, or body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why are through, or why as through though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? So part of what was going on is people were taking some of the teachings of Christ. They would teach it largely accurately, but they'll tweak a few little things. Now, where does that sound familiar from? Who else did that in the Bible? What was it? The Pharisees did it. And Jesus said, you are of your father the who? The devil. We go back to Genesis chapter 3 and we see the devil do the exact same thing. Mostly said what God said, tweaked a little bit. Just tweaked it a little bit. And that's how people operate even today. We see a lot of, if you go online and you look at sermons from many different groups, you'll probably hear many sermons that you have no problem with. Yeah, that's exactly what he says there. That's exactly what he's talking about. But you go listen to certain of their sermons, and it'll be wrong. There'll be something they've tweaked. I heard a sermon one time where they were teaching about the concept of baptism, and 90, I would say probably 95% of it was accurate. And then as soon as he got to the end, as soon as it was coming to the climax, he said, now this is to show that you are saved. And I'm like, you had the whole thing accurate up to this one point. This one point. And you see, that's how a lot of this works. And it's not, because, it's not always because people are malicious. Now, let's, let's be very aware of that. It's not always because people are maliciously taking the Word of God and saying, I don't like this, so I'm going to tweak it. Not always the case. Sometimes it is. There are some people out there who are very willing to do that. We read about a king in the Old Testament where he didn't like what the Word said, so he cut it out with a penknife and threw it away. There are some people with that mentality. But a lot of people are in these situations because it's just what they've always been taught. It's the way I've always heard things. And so because this is the way I've always heard things, and I've got it from very trustworthy sources in my opinion, then I'm not going to look it up. I'm not going to check it out. I'm not going to try to investigate a little bit farther. And so this is what Paul would have been dealing with and what the first century church would have been dealing with on a large scale because he's got the Jews over here. He says, okay, you were learned, taught about the old law your whole life. Well, that's not entirely, that's not accurate anymore. You don't need to follow that. That's been fulfilled. You got the people over here who were completely just starstruck by all the philosophers of their day and you've got to cut that out. And you've got the pagans over here with their ideas and you've got to cut that out. So there's a lot of different things they had to deal with in the first century in order to get to the point, this is the Word of God. This is who He is. This is what He does. And so as you go through and you see these things, it's important for us to realize that 
people never change. Because oftentimes when we read the Scriptures, we read about men like Paul or Apollos, we read about Moses or Elijah, we read about these people and we say, wow, these were such great men of faith. And we forget the fact they were just men. They were just people. Extraordinary or People that are put in extraordinary times usually end up either extraordinary or forgotten. <laughs> That's usually just what happens. People who just fly under the radar are not usually going to be mentioned, but it's those who stood up, those who stood out in their day and age. And so as we look through these periods and look through these different doctrines of men, you can start seeing similarities. Some of the ideas that people talk about today, I heard just the other day, I was just scrolling through online, and if you go through any Christian forum at all, or Christian social media page or anything like that, I give you probably 20 minutes before you hear something completely off the wall. And that might be being generous. But you'll hear something completely off the wall. One that I heard was that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament literally were two separate gods. You had Yahweh and you had Adonai, I think was the other God, or God that they mentioned. And they said that those two gods, one was a war god and one was a, a very peace-loving, almost hippie god. Where did they get that? There's two names in the Bible. But when you look at what those words were actually used for, some were used for more formality, some were used for more of the concept. It, it's just a, a misuse of old Hebrew. If someone comes up and starts spitting out Hebrew or spitting out Greek, nine times out of ten they probably don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> probably not. Those are difficult languages to master, difficult languages to learn, and your concordance is not going to make you a master. Sorry. But that's how a lot of people like to treat it. And so these Gnostics were people that were just coming up with these random ideas that they take from different forms, and they would take stories and they tweak them, and it would come out something like this. So then as we continue on, verse 23, he says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh." point he's making again here is that some of these doctrines that people are teaching, that sounds wise. I told someone on one occasion, I've, I've been tempted before to just get up in some public setting and just spout off a whole bunch of nonsense and see how long it takes someone to notice I'm just saying nonsense. The reality is most people get caught up in the way it's presented or get caught up in the big words that someone is using and don't realize Nothing was said there. Nothing was being said. The guy was just getting up and spouting out a whole bunch of things and people are clapping and applauding or they're, they're crying on the front row or something like that. But really, he didn't say anything of importance. It's important to actually look at the content of someone's words more so than the way they say it or the big word that they used. Most, If you go and listen to most uh, philosophers or psychology majors or people like that, you hear their, their dissertations, you'll listen to how they present it and they're just using words to fill time. And you could literally summarize that big sentence they just made into three or four words. And so it's important to understand that these people are going out, especially in the first century, they were going out and teaching these messages and they sounded wise. But the reality was the content was nothing. And that's what Paul said. It had no effect. Now let's go quickly to Jude chapter 1. 
specifically because there's only one chapter. But Jude chapter or Jude 1, let's start in verse 4. He says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There were people who were even taking God and turning it into something that was corrupt. Taking the concept of God or taking the deity of Christ. The idea that Jesus was not deity was not something that started in our country or started in our century. These are ideas that started a long time ago, and some of these ideas, it just takes a long time for it to find its audience. If we go look at men such as Socrates, for instance, I mean, Socrates was forced to commit suicide. The people who listened to him hated him, and now you can see almost any college campus will study the philosophy of Socrates. That's what happened. Go ahead. sin brought grace, we can sin more and get more grace. And you think, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody believes that today. The idea of once saved, always saved is just that. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that, you know, there's lots of grace and we're going to be covered by that and we can do what we want. It's really the the same concept as these. Mm -hmm. And even beyond that as well, there was a Catholic doctrine that was done, I don't know if it's still done today, but it was at least done Uh, in the early medieval period, but it was the idea of indulgences. I can just pay to have my sin certificate for the week. (laughs) I can come in and I can pay for this and all my sins are absolved for the next week. And that's really how it operated. So a lot of these ideas, we see them today and we think, how could someone have come uh, come up with that? Probably they weren't the one who came up with it. A lot of this stuff started a long time ago, and they've just tweaked it and changed it over the years until this is what it's become. Now, for the last two minutes that we have, any questions, comments at all, anything you want explained a little bit deeper? I know we went very fast tonight, but it's hard to get all these things in in 25 minutes, as Larry talked about the other week. Any questions or comments? Just teach. 
Well, then, in a couple of generations, they don't know the truth about any of these things. And the devil has effectively corrupted them by not teaching error. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely something that has been a major problem, even with a lot of different groups as well. And just to put in your notes for later on in connection with what Don was talking about with just not teaching some things, I would go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 through 18 and 19 in particular. And just have that in your notes, and you can read that on your own time since we are officially out of time. Jason has given me the signal. It's, it's done. Thank you so much for your attention, and we'll pick this up next week.